brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. So I really encourage parents to do their own deep, I call it their deep inner work. It is uncomfortable. It is not fun, but it involves things like really first confronting our own subconscious biases that we have against ADHD or other labels or neurodivergence, we have to really like get all of our fears out on the table. Uh, we have to kind of give them voice so we can deal with them, recognize them, and then start to lean into who our child actually is. Like that is where all of the work happens. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Debbie Reber is a parenting activist, New York Times bestselling author, and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a top podcast, community, and educational resource for parents raising differently wired children. Her most recent book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, came out in June 2018. After living abroad in the Netherlands for the past five years, Debbie, her husband, and teenage son recently moved back to New York City. Debbie, welcome. Thank you, Ned. I'm happy to be here. I'm delighted to have you. So let's let's jump right in. So let's start. Why did you write this book? I mean, there's so many great books, you know, in, in this pantheon. And of course, yours is right there at the top. But give us the backstory. Well, I will say that I have been writing books for almost 20 years. So this is I've always since I left the corporate world in 2003, I've identified as a author and as a writer. And I used to write self-help books for teenagers, um, a lot focused on girls. And so um, as I kind of got into my, kind of realized what I was dealing with as a parent and recognized I was going down a different path, I 
always knew I was going to write a book at some point. And in fact, I would meet with my agent and she would be like, yep, you're going to write about this, but you have to keep living it for now. And Mm. so um, I kind of always knew that I wanted to, at a certain point, share my experience because as a writer, what I'm really good at is is learning from a lot of different resources, applying strategies in my own life, and then sharing them in a way that other people can more easily access them or try Mm -hmm. them in their own world. And so I knew that I wanted to take those skills and, and, and use them to support other parents who, like me, are raising kids who are in some way neurologically atypical, and these parents are feeling kind of lost and overwhelmed and isolated. So that was that was the initial. In fact, the the book idea came before I even created Tilt Parenting. I kind of always had uh, it in the back of my mind. Well, the the book certainly does that really well. I mean, it is the particular those opening chapters are so raw. I mean, even now that you know the 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 the, the uncertainty and the struggle and the, and just the honesty is it's 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 palpable. Um, for those who haven't read the book, it, you, you know you will identify with it if you have kids who are neurologically atypical um but it doesn't end on on a sad place it ends in a very hopeful way so you you, if you, you got to read the book um okay, let's back up and explain to us just sort of broad way um what what we mean when we talk what you mean when you talk about differently wired um because some people might say well gosh isn't that kind of a you know overly broad category um maybe you could walk us through what what people kind of classically think of as differently wired and and what are some of the things that to use your words kind of kids who kind of fly under the radar for a while Mm -hmm. i will say that it is overly broad and that is intentional because you know there are so many ways that the brain (laughs) you know develops and so many different ways of kind of being and so i'll step back and just define differently wired in the way that i introduce it in the book. And I use that term to describe kids, people who are in any way um, neurologically atypical and may have an identification, a label such as ADHD, uh, autism spectrum, giftedness, anxiety, learning disabilities like dyslexia, dysgraphia, could be anxiety, sensory processing issues, speed processing, audio, like there's so many things, right? And the reason I wanted to make it more of a broad category is because a lot of these kids, as you say, fly under the radar. Their differences are often invisible. They're, they're, there's nothing outwardly um, evident to a teacher or a coach. You know, these are kids whose behavior might just seem more extreme or they're non-compliant or they're disruptors, you know, and, and I say that when they're young, that's a bad thing. When they're older, we want them to be disruptors, right? Because that's really prized in society. But um, I, so I I wanted to find a terminology that would kind of open up our arms to say, wow, there's a lot of us, you know, these are not kids who are outliers or who deserve to be marginalized. In fact, if we really take a look at all the different ways that kids can kind of move through the world, it's, a large percentage of kids who are in some way, you know, quote unquote outliers. And so I really wanted to push back against this idea that there is a normal and then there is, you know, and not normal or an atypical, but, but rather there are all of these variances and we need to be more inclusive as a society. 
I love your point that kids who are disruptive at a young age, right? They, they kind of can drive teachers crazy, you know, and, and we sort of tamp that down. And, but, but, but then 15 or 20 years later, we want them to be, and it's like, well, hold up. Um, because you make such a nice point about some of the, some of the attributes of, of neurologically atypical kids, um, the things that make them challenging in a air quotes, normal world are the same gifts that allow them to contribute in ways that are so wildly and wonderfully uh, unexpected. Now in that list, you, you put giftedness in there. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people that like, wait a second, now isn't giftedness just a great, give me, give me a break. Talk a little bit about how giftedness, you know, has its, has its pros and cons and, and why we should really be paying attention to that when we think about neurodiversity as well. Yeah, that was very deliberate. And actually, when I first launched Tilt Parenting, I got a lot of emails from people thanking me for including giftedness in the umbrella. And, you know, I'm raising a profoundly gifted, twice exceptional teen. But I remember, you know, he taught himself to read before he was three. He was just one of those uber precocious kids and super intense. And, you know, our first conversations with a parent coach, I, I'll never forget. I didn't think he was gifted. I, I probably had a knee jerk reaction um, against that label because I was like, I'm not going to be that parent who's saying my three year old is gifted. Right. Um, and so this coach, I was on the phone with her and describing these things. And, and she said to me, she's like, listen, um, when a parent comes to me and says, my child is gifted and they're really excited. I always know uh, their kid's probably not gifted because a true gifted kid is not great news for the most part, right? Because these kids are, they are intense. They're complicated. They're, they have asynchronous development. So they're often, you know, their emotional age can be so lower than their same age peers. And then their intellect can be so much higher. And that disconnect can create so many challenges. These are kids who, who, they can't just be, you know, promoted grades or given more work. They actually approach everything in their life from in a different way. And and it was really important to me that we recognize that these aren't just bright kids who, you know, we can have them ramp up a year or two in their math and they'll be fine. No, they actually, it's a special need in its own right, which is what this coach told me. And that really struck me. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's true. I mean, I, I'm very connected with the gifted community and was active with saying, and, and these kids are, they, they have a lot of unique needs and they deserve to be supported and accommodated for those needs. Hearing your point in the book about that asynchronous development, it made me think of children who are 99th percentile in terms of height. So it's a four-year-old who appears to be a six-year-old simply because of their height. And, and then we assume that, well, because this kid looks like a six-year-old, this kid should have the, the self-control, the rate and the self-regulation of a six-year-old. And it's like, no, just, just, just more, just more height, yeah. just bigger shoes. Exactly. You mentioned, you mentioned labels uh, in, your, in your last remark and, and how labels can be um, in the book, how they can be helpful for us to kind of wrap our brains around what we're seeing, but also how labels can really be deeply stigmatizing, particularly ones that mm, kind of miss the mark, um, that are deeply embedded in our culture and even daily conversation, but oftentimes in a not, not done in a purposeful or, or thoughtful way. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you've observed and how, for those of us who are trying to be do better, how do we break free of some of these patterns of language that are perhaps misplaced? 
I think language is so problematic and it's super messy. So I hope that my answer is coherent to people. But so what I will say is that labels can be really helpful uh, on the one hand because they can provide context for challenges or, um, you know, uh, traits for kids that can be confounding. And so having labels and those diagnoses can be really helpful. It can give context to teachers and, and that kind of thing. And yes, I believe certain labels of ADHD, I think is one of the more maligned of neural differences. And that label has so much stigma that goes along with it. And so I also think it can be really empowering to reclaim that and you know, and and not kind of treat it like it's a bad word, but kind of be more open. And I think more and more people are being open about their ADHD, their diagnoses. I'm seeing that with a lot more adults who are getting diagnosed as adults. And so I think that's how we kind of break down, you know, the stigma. But also we have a real problem with pathologizing different neural differences. And so there's a lot of labels, you know, the word disorder, I think is highly problematic. Um, epidemics of autism, you know, anytime we kind of use language that, that pathologizes a neuro difference, a neuro variance, I think that's a problem. And at the same time, we want to recognize that having ADHD, having dyslexia, being on the autism spectrum, society was not set up to support these people, right? So they are disabled in that society isn't meeting their needs. So it's kind of this balance. I find a lot of my work with parents is helping them kind of just question the labels that they've been uh, maybe assigned for their kids that that might be more medicalized, that might have um, more negative connotation and help them kind of reframe their thinking and also kind of empower them to own that and, and help their kids kind of feel good about those associations instead of thinking like it's a, you know, a bad mark, um, you know, that it's, it's a negative um, stain on our resume or whatever it might be. Yeah. You share that poignant vignette in the, in the book when, when talking to your son about the risks of, of autism and he's sort of head snapped and you, you know, sound like you, it's in the telling that you handled very well and in sort of great, let's talk about the chances of, of having right. autism as opposed to the, the risks, um, to your point, to, to not pathologize it. I will never forget that. Yeah, we were having this picnic and yeah, he was like, what do they mean? The risks of having autism? What do they think? It is a disease? He was outraged. Was sure. Like, oh my gosh. Like it's so pervasive and it's, it's, it's just in the fabric of the media we consume, you know, and so it takes vigilance and a constant questioning of um, the way that conversations are framed when we're talking about neurodivergence. And I like that idea of question because it seems to me that in, in popular culture, we have this, you you make note of, of folks who are on the autism spectrum of kind of this, these one notes of Vance or people who have ADHD, you know, clearly, clearly air quotes again, deserve the ridicule and the, the jokes at their expense um, as though these are issues of character rather than chemistry. Mm -hmm. um, and I hadn't heard that line, but uh, that, that if you, if you know one person with autism, you know, one person with autism, right. Mm -hmm. That, that mm -hmm. we can't, that it's, it's, we need to be so careful about um, applying a, uh, a label a condition, a recognition of a difference and thinking we know everything about that person. Mm -hmm. um, 
complicated terrain, but I, I, yes. I really like the, uh, um, I like the way that you talk about in the book um, that it's, it's something to be mindful without in scolding, you know, because if you're, if you're ignorant, you're ignorant, it doesn't mean it's malevolent, but, but certainly we need to be moving in that direction, moving in the direction of being more thoughtful. I will say too, that even from in the past five years since I launched Tilt, and then I did, you know, a paperback, uh, an updated edition of my book, like a year and a half later, and the language ha has evolved this whole time. Um, and so it, it's something to be always mindful of, you know, functioning labels and autism are not cool, like high functioning, low functioning. Oh. And, um, and, you know, Asperger's as a term is not considered okay, you know, anymore. And so it's super messy. And, um, and I do think it's important because my community, a lot of times it's parents who are new to this journey. And so they are coming in with this lens of what they've heard from their pediatrician or, you know, the person who did the evaluation. And so um, it is a, it, a lot of what I think about is how do we kind of uh, open up their again, open up their, their thinking and also really talking to actually autistic people and, and deferring to, um, you know, the, the thinking in, in these, these groups, people who are living with these narrow differences so that we're really following their lead and just supporting them in the work that we're doing. Hmm. So I'll, I'll show my own, own ignorance. Um, if I were uncertain kind of what's the, the kind of most current and, and sort of culturally appropriate language for, you know, for, for those communities, for, for someone who's not in the community, where do I, where, I mean, is, is, is your podcast a great place for this? Do I just Google? I mean, where do I, you know, how do I try to avoid sticking my foot in my mouth? Cause it doesn't taste very good. Yeah. And I'll, <laughs> um, I mean, certainly I have these conversations on my podcast and I, and I have at least 25% of my guests are neurodivergent in some way. So when I bring on a neurodivergent guest, we often dive into this territory at some point in the conversation. And then I always just recommend people follow on social media, Twitter, or in Facebook groups, communities that are, you know, again, there's some great actually autistic communities that actually autistic is a hashtag on Twitter. Um, and so but I will say even within the autistic community, there are a lot of differing opinions because as we said, you meet one autistic person, you, you know, one autistic person. So right. um, there is no one way, but I, I do try to, to follow the lead of those um, different communities. Thank you. That's helpful. You know, I, I imagine that for, um, for folks who are, you know, have little people and they're, and they're starting to figure out, Oh, I've got a kid who's atypical. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot to process. There's a lot to unpack. Um, and one of the things that, that seems to come through in your book is, is how much fear that can create. Because I, I think in many ways, the people cling to normal because normal equals safe, right? And as you start to realize, I'm not, I'm why that's not, that's not the kid that I, that's not the kid that I got. Um, and so, you know, fear of, you know, my, will my kid be made fun of, you know, what will his future be like? Um, you know, what does it mean for them in, in the long run? Um, how do we short circuit that pattern of, oh my gosh, you know, I have the, you know, I, you know, I picture, you know, 2.5 kids in a, in a white picket fence and, you know, whatever job selling insurance, I have no idea I'm making this up. Um, it's like, well, my kid probably is not going to be there. How do we, how do we do that? It's not easy. I will yeah. say it's, uh, we have to confront it. At, at a certain point. And so, you know, there are many families who spend a lot of time, years in denial and just kind of keep pushing and trying to fix their kid. Um, 
fix the air quotes, but fix their kids to, to, to try to get them to comply with the vision they had for what their life was going to look like. Um, but at a certain point, usually, uh, hopefully, um, the rubber meets the road, if that's the right metaphor. And they say, um, they realize this isn't working and we need to try something different. And, and I think that fear really is the driver. It's the motivator for so many of the choices that we make as parents. I think all parents, um, you know, because we, we do have this vision, this idea about what our kid's life and our family's life should look like. And so I really encourage parents to, to do their own deep, I call it their deep inner work. It is uncomfortable. It is not fun, but it involves things like really first confronting our own subconscious biases that we have against ADHD or other labels or neurodivergence or people who are differently wired. We have to look at that. We have to really like get all of our fears out on the table. Like the worst case scenario fears, my kid's going to be living under a bridge someday. Like, you know, um, they'll never launch. They'll never go to college. This will never happen. They'll never find love. Like we can, with our three-year-old or our five-year-old, we can have their whole future written out um, in, in the most negative way. And so we, we want to kind of give voice to those things because you know, just like what we're experiencing in society today, there's a lot of, of um, painful stuff going on that has is just coming to the surface and which we need to it needs to come to light so we can deal with it. And the same comes with our own fears. Uh, we have to kind of give them voice so we can we can deal with them, recognize them and then start to reframe our thinking and and start to to lean into who our child actually is. Like that is where all of the work happens, trying to reconcile that difference between our expectations for what life as a parent would be like and who our kids would be and what is actually happening, that reality. That's our work constantly is to reconcile those two. And I think that's where the most pain happens is when those two are out of alignment. Seems to me that in addition to um kind of the fear of my kids going to end up, you know, you know, unhappy, you know, living under a bridge kind of thing. There's also, I can imagine for most parents, a narrative of this perfect life that you imagine for, for, for them. And when you, when we start to come to grips with, well, maybe not, I imagine there's also a bit of, a bit of grieving for this imagined future for your kid. Um, though one of the things that seems to, seems to me, Debbie, is that this process of 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 you know introspection this process of figuring out who your kid is and really leaning into their one of your tilts is uh we'll talk about these more in a moment is um leading with possibility not fear and it seems to me that that's a process for each for for every parent you know my kid's supposed to be the quarterback of the football team or you know go to you know an ivy league school or whatever and even if you have a kid who who feels strikes you as more neurotypical, more typical or neurotypical. All of us, I imagine, have work to do of recognizing, you know, our kids are going to be who they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And it re- it's really not our role or our right to hold to some specific vision of what, of who they're supposed to be or what they're supposed to be. Yeah, totally. I, I, I've been talking lately about that our kids are on their own hero's journey. And I think like that, 
Yeah, when we're raising, especially differently wired kids, we might be way more involved in our kids' lives than than other parents because we might be, you know, schlepping them back and forth to therapies and, you know, just more kind of in the trenches and we can take it on as our journey and it's not. Like it is our child, our child comes in, I believe this, they're all creative resource, one whole. They have, this is their life. It is their, their life to unfold. And our job is really as, as coaches, as supporters to provide for them, you know, the best tools that we can so that they can be who they're meant to be. And um, I think that um, you brought up sports and I think that is such a great um, point. Like, you know, I, I think for most parents, um, you know, I was an athlete. My husband was a soccer player. I, I ran track in high school and some college. Like that is a big part of my identity. My guy is not into sports at all. That is just not his thing. And I, I think that happens for a lot of parents. And I think you use the word grief and mourn. And I think that recognizing it's okay to be sad about that, you know, and that's a for any parent, in some ways, our kids are not going to be the kids that we expect them to be. And, and you know, the sooner we can kind of deal with our own grief around that and be like, it's totally fine. This is my own sadness. Maybe it's my own. I wanted to do better by my kid than my parents did by me. Maybe, you know, I'm trying to resolve my childhood trauma in the way that I parent my child. But that's all our stuff. You know, so if right. we can just deal right, with right. our own stuff and let our kids be who they are, the sooner we can make that pivot and really do that work of seeing them as their own person, which is not easy, but that is, um, that is where the good stuff comes. And I feel like that's what helps our relationships with our kids. That's what helps them have the agency and confidence to be who they're meant to be. Love the kid you got, right? <laughs> Totally. Yeah. See, I could have just said all of that. Yeah. No. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, I, I love your, I love your, your sharing about, about sports and, uh, and, and the reality that, that you can continue to love running and, and being athletic and, and the fact that your son grooves on other things doesn't, <laughs> It doesn't take away from the way that you can enjoy that, because um, I know that's one of the the piece of advice you give towards the end of the book is 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 um you know having us really focus on our own self care and things that give us joy, um, because if all of our energy is in the ways that we, our kids are struggling or we think they're struggling, um, it doesn't paint a very um, it doesn't paint a very you know happy or hopeful version of adulthood where, where we want our kids to grow into right where mm-hmm. if you are living you know a fulfilling joyous life and with challenges right probably makes it easier for kids to think I could, I could, I can see a place for myself in the adult world. I'm supposed to just stay where I am. Yeah, totally. Um, in, in the book, you compare differently wired people to, to people of color, to LGBTQ um, people, to immigrants, people living in poverty and, and other groups in, in terms of the, the marginalization or kind of underrepresentation. And the point, it's an, it's an important one. What should we be thinking about in terms of supporting differently wired people who are also members of one or more of those groups? Yes, that intersectionality is is where I'm. That was the word I was looking for. Yeah, um, <laughs> I, 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 it's something I'm trying to bring more to the podcast too, because you know I think that certainly I've done several uh, episodes and been talking with more and more people. We know that um, 
we know that let's take giftedness, right? There is a huge conversation going on in this country about the lack of um, diversity and giftedness programs. In fact, in New York City here, they've just decided they're going to stop um, testing for uh, gifted and talented programs because they are so um, unequal. You know, it, it, they are there's so few kids of color identified as gifted. It's a huge problem. And I know the same thing happened in Seattle where I used to live. And so that is a conversation we just really need to be having uh, within, I had this great conversation with, um, her name is Maria Davis Pierre. She has an organization called Autism in Black. And we talked about just the, the, the cultural challenges for people of color when it comes to navigating the evaluation process. And there's a lot of mistrust in therapies and the diagnostic process. And, and, and overwhelmingly, you know, the the parenting, quote unquote, parenting expert space is white and uh, straight. And so there are just so many different ways of being that are not that are not easily accessed or represented when people are seeking guidance and support. Um, it, another interesting conversation that I've had and, and I'm seeing more and more in my community is there's a higher correlation of kids who are gender non-conforming or trans who are on the autism spectrum. And so that's another conversation we need to have. So I think that what I've learned even in the five years since I've been, you know, making this show and working within this community is just how important it is to keep bringing in more and more voices and making sure that I'm seeking out more voices so we can be more, more inclusive because I think to be neurodivergent and a person of color uh, and LGBTQ and trans and, you know, um, or having multiple of these uh, differences is really challenging. Mm. One of the things that occurs to me is is when when you talk about trying to understand these you understand these kids and diagnoses and and that whole process it can be frightening it can be um, you know uncertain and if and particularly if you are engaging with things that are different with people who are already different than you who look different who have different backgrounds uh, I think your your point of having more people of color as one example, more LGBTQ, more, more, you know, just having the people who are in these positions of helping, you know, be as diverse as the people who are there helping that uh, creates a, a, a sort of psychological safety. And, and I would imagine, make sure that all kids and not just rich white kids, you know, get the help. Um, because otherwise, you know, fundamentally, when I kept reading your book, I keep thinking of when you have these twice exceptional or, or you have kids who are just asynchronous, and we only see the problem we don't see. We don't see the promise. Mm -hmm. All of that human potential that just withers on the vine. And, and I don't know the data on it, but when you, when you talk about gifted and talented programs in New York City, the idea that, that, that it's 1% black and 25% and white or whatever the numbers are, just, mm -hmm. well, we're missing a lot of, we're, we're not developing a lot of opportunity. We're not seeing a lot of potential that's there. Well, and also I'll just add that, you know, research shows that kids of color, especially black boys are overwhelmingly, like they're just punished and disciplined at much higher rates for the same behavior in schools. And 
So the default uh, reaction isn't going to be, oh, this kid might be gifted or this child might have a learning disability. The, the default reaction for many kids of color is this is a bad kid who needs more discipline. And so, you know, these kids are pushed out of charter schools. They are the ones to be punished, expelled, um, disciplined at much higher rates. And, you know, you kind of look at the school to prison pipeline and the percentage of of you know, incarcerated individuals with learning disabilities is, is incredible. Like it is, it is a very, very high number. So there's absolutely a correlation. And there are so many kids that slip through the cracks because, because of these, you know, subconscious biases and the way that um, behavior is perceived and culture isn't understood and respected. Mm, I'm really, really glad you made that point. In the book, you talk about kids who are exceptional in a lot of ways, oftentimes are, are also have this really heightened sensitivity. It's sort of, you know, the orchid dandelion, you know, Boyce and Ellis hypothesis. And that high sensitivity, you make the point that we are comfortable, we're okay with kids who are highly sensitive crying, right? And, and, and just being really upset, but we're not okay with kids acting out. And we, w- that sensitivity, you know, a, a more sensitive stress response is the freeze, fight, or flight response, right? And so some kids are going to, under too much perceived pressure, they're just, they're just going to melt down and they're, they're going to cry and, and, and they're going to want to run away. But that's not true for other, everyone. Some kids, they, they fight back and, the, and, and they're tantrums and they're belligerent. And, and, and so a lot of times when we think about kids who have anger management problems or they're, they're air quotes, bad kids. It can be nothing more than they, they are just more sensitive to the world around them. And particularly, again, it's so easy to imagine how things go south really, really quickly. And what is this you know, hugely gifted child who just happens to be sensitive and then we punish him rather than, than supporting him? Yeah, I had that angry kid. I mean, my kid was the one who would kick over a desk and get thrown out of class because he his anxiety and stress response manifested in that way. Um, and, and it really did a number on him. I homeschooled him for years to kind of get him out of that um, PTSD that he had residual, I think, from, from being um, just being ostracized by teachers and school administrators and kids alike when he was a, a little guy in school. Yeah, you said it in the book where it, we'll tell the story about having to apologize that kind of just broke my heart. Yeah, it broke my heart too. And I'm still, I'm actually finding him right now when he says, I'm sorry for no reason. It's up to $3 a pop because I want him <laughs> to be more conscious of <laughs> when he says sorry for no reason. But yeah, I, I, this happened many years ago. Um, I don't remember the, the setup, but he, he said something to me. It's like, he's like, I'm sorry. He did something. And it's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, what are you? apologizing for you didn't do anything and he's like well I don't know I think I'm just used to it because I had to apologize all the time when I was in school because of my ADHD and I was like I'm sorry can you back up and tell me more about that and he he's like yeah like I anytime I did something like I blurted out or I you know um you know, got distracted or wasn't paying attention, I was made to apologize. And I lost my mind. I was like, that is not okay. And I just, just the thought that this kid has been like regularly apologizing just for who he is and making that mean something about himself, that he was flawed. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. Apologize for who he is. That, uh, 
I can imagine that experience um, applies to way too many people because we can back. I mean, how many people are actually, again, quote unquote, normal in every in every way? Yeah. Um, before I shift over to to the the tilts, um, one of the things that I love in this book is the, is the idea that things do get better, uh, you know. And and, and I, I love your th- thinking on this, but but three things that kind of jumped out to me were, um, you know, one that we we get better, we have a better understanding, um, and we can make you know find better learning or or living arrangements for for kids that are sensitive to kind of who they are and how they're wired. And then also that, particularly since your book's been written, and maybe because your book's been written, that we seem to have kind of more acceptance or better understanding of this neurodiversity generally. Um, so I'm, I'm hope I'm happy for that. Um, for parents who suspect that their kid needs something more than what they're getting or something is not, what are things that parents should look for? When do they know it's not just, um, you know, eh, it's just the age, you know, when, when should they be reaching out to a clinician or really having real conversations with their school administrators? I mean, what are, you know, for people who haven't walked this walk yet, um, when, when do you raise your hand and ask for help? I think that it's really important that parents trust their guts on this. Oftentimes we may sense uh, that our child is kind of, I call them the more kids, right? They're their, rea- their tantrums are more than their friends' kids, or um, they're more active, they're more sensitive. And so if we're starting to notice, and just in our peer group, that, oh, this is a little bit of a different experience, or I'm reading the same parenting book, or using the same philosophy, and I'm getting very different results, those are signs that um, that you might want to kind of get a little more information. Certainly when our kids start preschool, that is when often we'll start getting more feedback from the school that, you know, whether it's, you know, your child isn't participating at all um, and likes to be by him or herself all the time, or, Hmm. um, you know, or in my case, I was getting a lot of notes and a lot of phone calls because things that happened on the playground and things that were very upsetting to my child um, or um, disruptive. And so I think if we're starting getting that to get that feedback, I recommend people start with their pediatrician, although we did and our pediatrician was like, this is all normal within, you know, this is in the range of normal developmental for your, your child. And in fact, I remember that conversation and it was, Ash was having a super chatty day and was talking about you know, I don't know, space robotics. I don't know what he was talking about, but the pediatrician was delighted. He was like, this is great. You know, I don't see anything of concern here. Um, And, you know, but months later, we were going to a therapist for anger management for our whole family. So I think, you know, as a parent, we want to trust our our gut and our intuition. Um, Talk to other people who, who really understand kids and don't panic. That's what I would just say. Don't panic. And, you know, it's not like if something's going on, you've got to do X, Y, and Z right away. You know, um, take a pause, take a breath, uh, try to just get curious, try to start really paying attention to who your child is. Understood.org, I'm just going to say, is a really great resource for all kinds of learning and attention issues. And they have this new tool called Take Note. And it is a kind of a behavior tracker and it will help you start to gather data. Like we want to be researchers and start getting curious about what's, huh, this is interesting. I wonder 
if there's something that happened earlier today that could have resulted in this meltdown we're having right now. So we want to just start getting, start to notice behaviors and um, patterns and, um, and then start reaching out and, and seeing what kind of support is out there. But I would just remind people to take that pause, take a breath, not panic and um, get curious. One one thought I was thinking about your your that first experience with your pediatrician um, is that for a lot of kids who are more sensitive, that stress response is activated more by peers and learning environments than it is with adults. Um, I have a kid who's like that who, I mean, just you know, adults just think she's the sun and the moon. Um, but for years of her time in school that sh that thought was not shared by her peers at all and so you know adulthood you know even a pediatrician who's trying you know well educated sees your kid in a 15 minute spot and your kid just happens to be having a good day um well you're fine and and, and dismisses <laughs> your lived mm -hmm. experience of the last several thousand hours mm -hmm. i wonder whether i've just popped to mind whether keeping a journal or keeping a you know kind of diaries you know here's what we experienced on tuesday and on wednesday and thursday because to your point about doing research providing data um to people could be uh um, here here read this before you tell me what it is um exactly yeah um, and what, I'd love to have you just one, another thought or two, if you have it, um, you know, those notes home from teachers and, and even particularly teachers who are, who, who are, have lots of experience. I mean, those folks really can be not always, but really can be our allies because, um, you know, if you have a second grader, third grader, and it's your first time going through it, this is your first experience with a second grader, or third grader, but, you know, a teacher of 25 years has seen a lot Mm -hmm. of children and so ideally if you if you have a um your kid has a good teacher they are going to be able to have surveyed the landscape and be able to put your kid in context a little bit more but i'd love for you to talk just if you have another thought about kids who fly under the radar because i suspect it is you know those those acting up adhd kids are um and again we, we always think it's boys as you as you make the point it's it's it's, it's not just boys um what about what do we do for those kids who you know we sense something but they seem to fly under other people's radar again trusting our our gut and i think you know you mentioned boys yeah girls are notoriously underdiagnosed for adhd and for autism spectrum disorders because they present mm. differently and so there's a there it's a whole generation of women who were missed as kids and there's a lot of grief around being diagnosed as an adult and realizing that you're there was a real reason why you you didn't thrive um, as a child and you can't that's a whole processing um, process that has to you know, people have to go through um, so yeah I would just say just push advocate um, if you really believe that your child is not thriving in some area and it could be that they uh, are more anxious um, their their mental health is suffering their grades aren't are, are you know they're not doing well with their grades they're having social problems they're not really connecting with peers uh, all of these things would be signs that there there's probably something going on that, that is getting in their way and um, there's so much support out there. That's the great news. Sometimes if we're looking for a more formal diagnosis, there can be long wait lists uh, to get to get a full um, assessment or evaluation. But there are plenty of, you know, therapists and counselors and, and parent coaches who could help 
get you on the right track to at least knowing where where you would go next to to get some more information. Again, we don't have to be chasing labels and diagnoses, but what we want to do is really understand what's getting in my kid's way. Like if they're not thriving, what's going on? Is there mm. something that is creating anxiety? Is there something often it is these sensory or processing issues are slow processing speed is super stealth. It's people don't understand what it is. It's confounding really bright and gifted kids can have slow processing speed. And that is confusing. You know, it, it explains so much, but people don't even know about it. And a lot of educators don't. So, so be vigilant, you know, do, do research. And again, if you believe there's something going on, there probably is. Uh, mm. I, I don't think, I don't hear about a lot of parents trying to create problems where there are none, you know? <laughs> Yeah, if I if I were to distill that down, it, it it sounds to me like if if things are unexpected, right? If you refer back to that asynchronous, you know that this is wonderful and this is 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 really hard and surprisingly hard, um, you know. And and sure, the, the, I love the the, the observation that that um, kids be doing so great, you know, particularly girls who present so well and then fly under the radar. I remember the one of the very first students I had with learning difference, um, who, all processing speed, and this was. 1994. So I was probably 20, I guess I was 24 at the time. And this boy had um, a conversation with us fascinating because not just slow process speed in his own reading, but even just conversationally. And I'm like, holy smokes, I, 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 I didn't know anything. I had no training. I didn't know what I was looking at. Fast forward, the kids ends up with not that the SATs are everything, but an SAT score over 1500 and runs off, runs off to Stanford. And so, I mean, a brilliant mind, but one that worked in ways that were unexpected. And so just mm -hmm. so to me, that feels like, a, um, I, you know, trust your gut. And if this is not what one would have expected, not I expect my kid to go to Harvard, but I see this and I see though that and, and those two things don't seem, you know, consistent. Yeah. So the last two thirds of the book are all about your, your 18 tilts. And I do not want to run through them. One, because I can't possibly give voice to them in the way that you have. And two, folks, you got you to get the book. <laughs> you got to read the book. But I'm wondering, is there one or two of these that have most resonated with people that, you know, people from your, your tilt committee have said, yeah, that's been the hard one, but has made, has made such a difference for us. Well, the first one that comes to mind is to understand that every child is on their own unique timeline. And that speaks to the disconnect you were just uh, talking about. But that is a big one. They're all kind of related to fear <laughs> at the end of the day, because we have a lot of fear if, uh, if our child is not reaching milestones that society has deemed are important for any given age or grade. And this could be as little, and I talk about this in the book, as like, my child is not tying their shoes yet. Oh my gosh, what does this mean? They have to tie their shoes. And I'm like, that's what Velcro and zippers are for. And like, it just doesn't matter. And so the timeline tilt is really about, again, looking at the things that we are prioritizing as parents, those things that we think are so important, and then disputing them. I'm thinking, what would happen if my kid didn't master this skill until they were 20? Do they absolutely need to know how to do this at age 10? Or am I just buying into some 
you know, mainstream philosophy or some clickbait article that I read, you know, online about the 10 things every 13 year old should know how to do. Like it doesn't look that way. And so it's really important that we recognize ways that we might be not seeing or respecting who our child is and pushing them to do something that developmentally they're not ready to do. And we know that when we do that, it's going to backfire. We know we're going to create more resistance in our kids around that task. We may crush their desire to ever want to do it. And (laughs) it just, it doesn't end well. And I'm just going to give you a little example. So I mentioned that I homeschooled my child. It was from grades three through eight. And first, you know, I was like, well, he's got to learn cursive, right? That's what you do in third grade. And so I got the, you know, handwriting without tears book for cursive and, you know, introduced this. He did it for like one day and was completely not into it. And it not, not just wasn't he into it, but he was very resistant. And so I was like, you know what? I don't care if you learn how to write cursive. It doesn't matter. I did some research. It's like, fine, let's work on the computer. Let's type things for now. Cause handwriting was super labor intensive for him. So flash forward like five years and he has somehow he's, he's a deep diet. He loves everything to learn about everything. And so he somehow got interested in like Spencerian scripts and uh, started getting interested in typography and type design. And then I, found him a a typography instructor mentor and she's really into calligraphy so here we are today he he does beautiful calligraphy he has this beautiful cursive handwriting and he's so proud of it and I guarantee if I had shoved that handwriting without tears book down his throat he would that would none of this would have happened this love of typography and and creative writing and handwriting so that's just one little example but when we give kids, you know, the, the agency to, to, and, the, and you write about this in your book, but you know, when they're intrinsically motivated to learn something and they feel that, that drive, they will master it on their own time and feel amazing about it. Right. And that's what we want. Oh, that's such a wonderful story. It's such a wonderful story. And, and you know, it, 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 my, my brain was sort of flashing to all the articles that we've been seeing right now of how hard learning is and learning loss and, you know, with COVID and, you know, hitting lower income communities even more than, than, than a higher community. And just, it, and it's just hard, right. And all this fear of, of, you know, what's going to be lost and are our kids ever catch up. And I think you just expressed that so beautifully that because it just because it isn't learned now doesn't mean it can't be learned and that it won't be learned in the future. Um, and because it, I love that idea that we're, we're all on our own timeline. And if we're delayed a little bit, delayed does not mean denied when it comes to yeah. things like learning in part, in part, because everything is easier with a more mature brain, right? You know, I mean, yeah. you probably, you know, if, if, if you pick this up, you know, five years, you know, in eighth grade rather than third grader, um, you know, he may, he may fly right through and think, I'm a natural at this. Uh, and totally. I, and I love that you. I love that you had the wisdom and the courage to say, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I don't have to do this or I don't have to do this now. Um, one of my, one of my, um, well, again, to your point, all, a lot of these tilts, um, you know, kind of morph together, but one of them was give, give voice to, but give loud and unapologetic voice to your own reality. 
Mm-hmm. And for, for a lot of people who may be listening to this, where I just, you know, their, 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 their experience right now or their kids experience might just be, I can't, I just get, yeah, I, I can't. Mm-hmm. And for us to, to be okay with that for now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because who knows three or five years from now, we, we might, we might have an entire country filled of, of curious learners and calligraphers. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Right. You know, we can all go back to writing love letters. Valentine's Day is coming, right? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. I mean, to your point, the articles that I'm seeing kind of go viral right now on social media are the ones where people are just saying, this is really hard. And my life is a huge mess right now. And remote schooling is not going well because it's so validating to hear from other people oh gosh, I'm not the only one. And I I think it is, that's part of the thinking behind this tilt is that in order for us to normalize difference, we need to just kind of talk about it matter-of-factly, not be secretive about it or treat it as if it's a a, a dirty, you know, secret that nobody needs to know about our families, Mm -hmm. but rather this is our, like our lives have value this experience is real and there's nothing wrong with it. And there's nothing wrong with the fact that my child is differently wired. He or she is exactly who he's or she or they Mm -hmm. are supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So why would we, why would we play small? You know? So I really encourage parents to, you know, to just kind of question where they're not fully showing up as themselves and, um, and think about what, how might I push this paradigm shift further along if I were to more authentically kind of just be just normalize what our family's going through? I love it. I love it. Well, you and I both know that one of the core attributes uh, contributors to intrinsic motivation is relatedness. And so it, it, for us to really, you know, embrace our kids for who they are, that is actually giving the juice to engage with things that might be harder to engage with. And, uh, Certainly for, for, certainly for families who have kids who are differently wired. And really for everyone, this is, this is very much a book I think that we can all, all relate to. Um, Debbie Reber is the author of Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. It is a great book. I hope people pick it up and join the Till community, um, particularly if you have a kid who needs a little bit more support. This means that you need a little bit more support. And Debbie has built a robust and remarkable community of parents supporting remarkable kids. Uh, It is a pleasure to have you today, Debbie. Thank you so much, Ned. I love this conversation. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.